Some things in life don't seem to go together, but then if you're around them long enough, they do. Some of you who are married couples may have started out as odd couples that didn't seem to go together, and and now you just do. Like Rachel and me, for example. Rachel has always been what she still is, a very sweet, kind-looking little gal who has always looked much younger than she actually is. And she married someone that looks like a big walking, walking mugshot. I mean, I put on a stocking hat, and I look like subject number three in the police lineup. Let's be honest. We can be, we can be honest. But after 20 years, we, we go together pretty good. Some things don't appear to go together, but they actually do. Here's another example. This, if you can, I know you can't read all of that, but this right here, these are two businesses next door to each other in Chicago. This one right here, uh, this says New Fish up here. This is a, a store that sells aquarium supplies and pet fish. You know what this is right here? This is a sushi restaurant, <laughs> you know? It doesn't seem like that goes together very well, but if you think about it, I mean, what could be better? How do you keep it fresher than that? That's a pretty, pretty good idea. Another odd couple, an odd pairing. When I first met Rachel, her dad had this giant male St. Bernard, and one winter, this St. Bernard rescued a freezing little orange kitten, little tiny thing, and they became fast friends. And the St. Bernard would carry this little cat around in its mouth. And I don't mean by the scruff of the neck. I mean all the way inside its massive skull, the, cat, the kitten would disappear, and then he would open his mouth, and this little thing would slimy and slobbery would crawl out. As it grew... As the cat grew, they would still travel like that, and there'd be arms and like a tail hanging out of this thing's mouth, and they were were buddies. Now, the reason I I bring that up is this morning in the book of Matthew. We're going to study two little passages from the book of Matthew this morning, that seem to go together about as well as peanut butter and kerosene. They don't seem like they go together really at all. First, we're going to read as Jesus predicts his death and resurrection for the second time now. This is what's known as Jesus' second passion prediction. And then after that, there's this peculiar little story about whether... Jesus plans to pay a special kind of tax. And then Jesus has this miraculous way to pay that tax. He tells Peter to go catch a fish, and when he looks in the mouth of the fish, he'll find enough money to pay their taxes. And those those two stories don't seem to have much in common. Matthew is the only one to tell the, the fish with the coin in its mouth story. What did Matthew do for a living before he became a full-time disciple of Jesus? He was a tax collector. And he tells this special story about the collection of a special tax. 
And I think he's the only one that tells it because it, it spoke to his heart. It kind of hit him where he lived. And even though these two stories don't seem to go together, I think they do in a, in a special and a powerful way that I want to share with you this morning. Let's read our passage first. If you have your Bible, if there's, there might be one in front of you, in the, under the chair in front of you, Matthew 17, we're going to read verses 22 through 27, and they read this way. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to his disciples, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And the disciples were deeply grieved. Next story. When they came to Capernaum, those who collect the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And Peter said, yes. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect their customs or poll tax? Do they collect from their sons or from strangers? And when Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, Jesus said, so that we do not offend them, Go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel and take that and give it to them for you and for me. Those are the two stories that don't seem to go together. The first one, briefly, verses 22 and 23, is Jesus' second prediction of his death, his second passion prediction. The first time Jesus predicted his death was in chapter 16, verse 21. This is very similar, though it's not identical. There's a couple of differences in this one from the last one that I want to point out to you. The only real difference in the prediction itself comes with the translated, be betrayed. Your Bible might say, be handed over or delivered into the hands of other men. Jesus introduces this new thing. He's already told him he's going to die and rise again. He's told him his enemies are going to do it, which, by the way, in the New Testament, the people always held responsible for the death of Jesus from a human perspective are the Jewish leaders. The Romans carried out the execution, but the Jewish leaders are the responsible party as far as the, the New Testament is concerned. And Jesus says that he's going to be handed, delivered like a package into those who will kill him. Betrayal is the new, uh, the new idea. And the only other difference this time is not so much in the prediction as in the response of the disciples. Last time Jesus predicted his death, which was the first time, Peter rebuked Jesus told him basically, stop thinking stuff like that. God would never allow you to die. And what did Jesus do? Jesus called Peter Satan in front of his friends, which is a bad day. And so this time they've learned their lesson. Nobody rebukes Jesus or tries to talk him out of it, but they don't like it either. Notice this time all the disciples become, your Bible might say, greatly distressed. Um, it might Somehow your Bible communicates the idea that they are tore up that Jesus has just predicted his death again. 
We don't know specifically why they're so Torah. Part of it is they're sad, they're distressed, they're stressed out, they're grieved because this could happen to Jesus. But it also could be they're tore up because Jesus is still continuing on with this plan that they don't like. Well, that's, that's the first story. And immediately after that, that happened, we're told at the beginning of verse 22, that uh, that happened when they got back into Galilee. They had been in Gentile territory. By verse 24, they've arrived back into the town called Capernaum. It's a little town um, by the Sea of Galilee. And we know it's their home base. This is the home base of Jesus' Galilean ministry. It is the hometown of at least four of the disciples, the fishermen brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John. They're from Capernaum. Matthew is probably from Capernaum. At the very least, he was stationed there and worked there as a tax collector. That was probably his hometown, and we don't know about some of the others. But it wouldn't have surprised the original audience that since they've been gone for a while traveling, as soon as they get back to their, to their hometown, they get sort of a knock on the door at Peter's house by some, by some men collecting a very specific tax. To understand this passage and how these two things go together, we've got to understand what kind of tax this is and what kind of tax it isn't. This is not a tax uh, from the Romans placed upon the Jews. Right? This is not the oppressive, godless Gentiles taxing the Jews. This is Jews taxing Jews. This is, some of our Bibles translate this more literally, the words say double drachma. But that would let the original reader know that this is in fact the temple tax. And some of your Bibles might just translate this, the temple tax. What this is, this tax was invented by Jews for Jews. If we would turn back into the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, the, the Jews decided to keep the temple up and running. They would assess this tax on themselves. Every male of Israelite descent, 20 years of age or older, was to pay approximately two days' wages for the support of the temple. That's what this tax was. Now, what was the temple for? Why did the temple exist? Also important to our story. The temple existed mainly as a place for sacrifices to happen. The purpose of the temples in the Old Testament, God promised sin costs blood, sin costs death. And for a temporary time, beginning with the presentation of the law up until the cross, God said faithful people should bring animals and kill them as sacrifices. And the blood of those animals, the death of that animal, would temporarily atone for the sin of the sinner. That's what the temple was for, a place to remind Israelites of the cost of their sin and a place where, by faith, Israelites, later Jews, could, could bring the sacrifices that God prescribed. That's the purpose of the temple, and that's the purpose of this tax. With me so far? So they come to Peter, not because Peter so much is the leader of the disciples, though he is, but because Peter's the man of the house. They stay at Peter's house. 
and the men who have been sent by the, the leaders of, of Israel to collect this tax, they come to Peter and they ask him for his tax. That goes without saying. But they ask a very special question of Peter. They say, your teacher, Jesus, he pays the temple tax, right? In Greek, there's ways to ask questions that if I were asking you a question in Greek, I could let you know if I expected you to say yes or no. And, and they expect them to say yes. They expect Peter to say yes, Jesus does. It's like they say, I mean, Jesus pays the temple tax, right? Surely he pays the temple tax. And there's something going on in this question. Notice, this isn't Jesus' hometown. Normally, he would be asked to pay this in his hometown, but he doesn't really live there. They've sent these men to find Jesus and ask if he pays this tax. Because not everybody in Israel, not every male 20 years of age or older, had to pay this tax. Priests were exempt, and formerly ordained rabbis were exempt. And so what they're asking is, does Jesus claim one of those exemptions for himself? Because Jesus was not a formerly ordained rabbi, ordained by the, the, the religious leaders of Israel. He was opposed by the religious leaders of Israel. And they want to see if he claims that kind of exemption for himself. They're probably looking like they always are for a way to trap Jesus. Well, Peter, they asked just Peter, we have no indication that Jesus is outside talking to these men. They ask, hey, you're, does he pay this or not? And without checking, Peter's fond of talking before he thinks, right? Peter says, yes. It's the very beginning of uh, verse 25, I believe. Peter says, yes, of course he pays. I'll go get him. Jesus would definitely be loyal to the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And then Peter walks inside. And I don't know if Jesus has overheard the conversation that Peter has had, or just because he's Jesus and he knows stuff, he knows what's up. Before Peter can ask Jesus, Lord, you pay this thing, right? Jesus talks to Peter first. So he says, yes, of course Jesus pays the temple tax. And Jesus is going to correct Simon Peter's thinking. He's going to tell him that he does pay the tax, but not for the reason you think, Peter. He's going to say, yes, I pay the tax, but it's a qualified yes. It's a nuanced yes. It's yes, but not for the reason you think yes. And he wants Peter to think through an analogy. When Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? Answer this for me. From whom do earthly kings collect tolls or taxes? Do they collect them from their sons or from foreigners, from strangers? The answer to that question is pretty easy. Kings didn't tax their sons. They didn't tax the royal family. They taxed their, the rest of their subjects. They didn't Taxing their sons would have been like taxing themselves. Their sons didn't pay the tax. So Jesus says, who do kings collect taxes from? Sons are strangers. Peter says, well, from strangers, from foreigners. And so Jesus says to Peter, well, then the sons are free. What's Jesus saying there? Do you catch what Jesus is saying there? 
He's saying, I don't have to pay this tax. I'm exempt from this tax. He's telling Peter, that temple is my father's temple. I'm the only son. Kings don't tax their sons. Therefore, I'm exempt from paying this tax. Also, why does the temple exist? It exists so people can offer sacrifices for their sins, of which Jesus has none. He's not obligated to pay this tax. He doesn't deserve to pay this tax. And basically, the temple is his. It points to him. The sacrificial system all pointed to the Christ. But after telling Peter, I don't need, I don't deserve, I'm not obligated to pay this tax, he says, but I'm going to pay the tax. Why? Beginning of verse 27, Jesus says, but so we don't offend them, I'm going to pay this thing. Who's the them? It's pretty easy to identify. There's only... The characters in this story are Jesus, Peter, and the guys outside collecting this tax. Jesus says, the people who sent these guys to collect that tax, those men, but really the people that sent them, the people who are wondering if I pay this tax, I don't want to offend them, so I'm going to pay it. Now here's our first connection in the two stories that don't seem to go together. First story was Jesus' passion prediction. He said, I'm going to be delivered over into the hands of people who are going to kill me. Who are those people? Do you know the end of the story? Who are the people who are responsible for killing Jesus? The same people who are collecting this tax. So wrap your minds around this. Here's what Jesus just said. Peter, I'm not, I'm not obligated to pay that tax, but I'm going to because I don't want to offend the very people who are going to kill me. The people who call me a drunk. The very people who call me demonized. The very people that oppose my message and will eventually kill me. I'm going to pay this tax because I don't want to offend them. This is exhibit number 2065, why Jesus Christ is an is an unbelievably wonderful human being and is way better and way more than you and me. Amen? There's a, there's a mini lesson in here. It's not the main lesson, but I want you to hear it anyway. It bears mentioning. And that'd be this. We're not to cause unnecessary offense. We're not to cause unnecessary offense. Just because someone is wrong does not give me free reign to offend them however I want. Because nobody's wronger in the Gospels than the religious leaders. And Jesus says, I'm not going to, I'd rather pay this tax than cause them offense. Now, just because what I say might offend someone does not mean I don't say it. Sometimes I have to have difficult conversations that will offend someone I'm having a conversation with. But if I'm going to offend someone with a conversation with words that I must say, I better pause. I better examine my motives. 
and I better make sure that the offense I will offer is something that is needed to happen. It's not just something that's going to make me feel better, make me feel superior, make them feel low, make them pay. As Christians, we're responsible to speak the truth with love. And sometimes we just don't offend, and sometimes we must. But apparently we don't do one thing all the time. Jesus had no problem offending the religious leaders when he decided it was necessary. But as wrong as they were, there's at least one example where he said, I'm not going to offend them by not paying this tax. It's not going to be, the message will not be received the way it's intended. Here's why Jesus maybe wouldn't pay this tax. Because within a year after he's died on the cross, financial support for the temple system would be about as useful as lighting money on fire. Because once Jesus becomes the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world, there's no more need for animal sacrifices. It's obsolete. So by the time these guys get this tax money back to Jerusalem, get it put in the treasury, and by the time they get it sent, there will be no need for anyone to support the temple anymore. But Jesus knows people won't understand that. This will just be a way they can make accusations against me, disloyalty, yada, yada, yada. So rather than present a stumbling block for people who might believe later, Jesus says, we're going to pay the tax, but the story's not done. He has an amazing plan for paying this tax. He doesn't tell Peter to go get a part-time job. (laughs) He tells Peter to go fishing. Verse 27, so that we don't offend them, here's what you do, Pete. You go to the lake, the Sea of Galilee, you throw out a hook, catch one fish, the first fish that you catch, when you open its mouth, you're going to find a four drachma coin. That's enough to pay for my tax and your tax. And you take that, give it to these tax collectors so that you and I are both paid for. That's what I call TurboTax right there. I mean, that... How many of you would be okay if that was God's plan for paying your taxes? Amen? I mean, if that's what I was selling here this morning, we would have, we'd have a lot fewer empty seats, right? I think we, would you agree that would be great if God designed some way that whatever, the debt you had to pay to the government, he, I'd pay my taxes if it went like, went like that. And that's what, that's what happened. We're not told that, G, that Peter did this. We just assume That's the way this went down. And there is, there's a big, awesome, beautiful message in these two passages that don't seem to go together. It's not just about don't offend people unless you have to, though that's important. This is not a message about pay your taxes to the godless government because that's really not what this text was about. There's a better message than this. this. These two little passages form a picture of the gospel. Think, think through this with me. Follow me here. Which character in this story did we learn was really exempt from this tax? Did not need to pay this tax. Who was that? Jesus. 
He had no sin. He didn't need sacrifices to be paid on his behalf. It was his daddy's temple and really his temple. He had no obligation to pay this tax. Which character in this passage did deserve to pay this tax and until the cross biblically was required to pay this tax? Who was that? Peter. Peter was a sinner. Peter needed, until the cross of Jesus Christ would take place, he needed sacrifices on his behalf to be offered in the temple in Jerusalem for the atonement of his sin. Now, who paid for whom? Do you see where we're going? Jesus had no need. He had no sin guilt. He had no obligation to pay for the atonement of sin that went on in that temple. He had no need to pay it. But he did. And he didn't pay for his own sin. He didn't pay for his own tax bill. He paid for his friend Peter's. It's a story of the one with no obligation paying off the obligation of his friend. That's how this little story is a picture of the gospel. And I want to draw your attention back to something Jesus said when when he and Peter were talking about who who do kings tax? Their sons or strangers? And Peter said, oh, they, they, they tax strangers. And I want you to notice that Jesus said, then the sons are free. Plural. He didn't say the son is free because that's my daddy's temple. He said the sons, plural. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives every single person the chance to be a child of God who is free from the debt they owe due to sin. But don't miss. No one is free from their sin guilt because God just decides, I've changed my mind, I'm not going to punish sin. How do we become free from the debt we owe? Only if Jesus pays. Just as literally and even more miraculously than Peter. Think about this. Think about the miracle in this story. Peter, throw a line out. I know which fish you're going to catch. And I know there's going to be money in the mouth of that fish. And it's going to be enough to fully pay the tax bill you owe because you're a sinner and your sin needs atoned for. Is that miraculous? And we all agreed a minute ago, boy, if God could set up a system like that for me, where he would pay what I owe, man, that would be swell. He did. But listen, you owe a much higher authority than the, than the United States government, a much larger debt than anything financially you've ever racked up. You owe, because of your sin, you owe the wages of your sin is death, which is always separation in the Bible, separation from God. That had to be paid And either Jesus will pay your separation from God 
or you will. And if you or I are separated from God, we cannot undo that separation. We will be separated from God for all of eternity. But rather than taking a coin out of a fish's mouth, Jesus allowed himself to be delivered over into the hands of men and put to death on a cross. And on that cross, he was separated from the Father because your sin was what he became. And that was the death your sin and my sin deserved. Now, because he was the sinless, spotless Son of God, God raised him up and reconciled him back into relationship with the Father. And he said, whoever believes that that's what I have done, then I will make that tax payment be your tax payment. And when you come to believe that Jesus Christ died on, there, on the cross for your sins, your tax bill says paid in full. And it is signed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Just as surely as if you opened the fish's mouth and could hold the coins in your hand. And that's why I believe one tax collector heard this story and it spoke to his heart. Somebody who had spent a lifetime collecting taxes that people owed or they would be in trouble. Saw what Jesus did for his friend Simon and said, that is how the sons go free. Not because we can be good enough that God will never be angry, but because Jesus paid it all. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this peculiar little story that reminds us again that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But we are not free because the price of our sin was free. It was incredibly costly, but it was paid by Jesus on the cross. God, if there is anyone here who has never understood, who has never decided to place their faith and trust for their salvation, for their eternity on the blood of Jesus, I pray you would work in their hearts and call them to yourself right now. They would come to a place of repentance and confession and acceptance that Jesus did what the scriptures claim he did. That he died to pay the tax bill I deserve. And either he will pay or I will pay. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying what we will never have to if we believe in you. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.